Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. It's getting harder and harder to think about those who represent us in government without also remembering the way the institutions that they belong to, what they have become. Far too many of the institutions of government have simply become platforms for politicians for their own gain, for their own popularity, and that's all undermining trust in America. The question is, can we change the game and dynamic, and what happens if we can't? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. Well, we have talked about the deficit of trust in the institutions of government. We've talked about the deficit of trust that uh, we are facing with a lot of our elected officials, and we want to get under the headlines of a lot of that. It's easy to shrug shoulders and point fingers and place blame and say, oh, it's because this party's doing that or that politician is doing that. Uh, but there's much more to it that we have to get to if we're ever going to solve the problem, change the trajectory, which I think is crucial to the future of the country. You've heard me say this before. We have stress tested the United States of America in all kinds of incredibly difficult circumstances. We've done it through pandemics. We've done it through world wars. We've done it in the face of economic collapse. But the one thing we have not done in this country is we have not stress tested this nation in the absence of trust, particularly trust in institutions, let alone trust in each other. And both of those are waning. And that's disturbing. And that's something we've got to get to the bottom of so we can figure out how to get our way out of it. And it may be one of those like when you're sinking in the water, you may have to hit bottom so you have something to push against uh, to get back to the surface. And I know a lot of us are feeling that way, that we've been underwater, uh, we're gasping for air, uh, but we've got to find a place to push off from. And all of the, the latest polling, all of the latest indicators, when you really talk to the American people, is this trust deficit continues to mount. And there's a couple of levels of it that I think are, are really interesting. One of the things that we have noticed and have noted on this program before, uh, based on some research from RMG, is that this lack of trust in government has continued to grow really since 1972. You can go back that far. Uh, And really, the growth of the administrative state has sort of been in parallel with that growing distrust. There were actually only a couple of periods since 1972 where you've actually seen that trust gap change. And should not be surprising that the two times that there was a change and an increase in trust in government and government institutions occurred during the Reagan years and during the Bill Clinton years. Uh, Obviously, Ronald Reagan was famous for the line uh, that made everybody chuckle and be a little nervous as well, that uh, the most feared words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. And that sparked an era where things started to change. And because of that, public opinion and trust in government also changed. When Bill Clinton declared that the era of big government was over, it also sparked a change in public perception and trust in government. Since then, of course, we've seen nothing but an expansion of government, and we've also seen the expansion of performative politics uh, in the social media age that has undermined our confidence 
and trust not only in the institutions, but in those who occupy the seats inside of those institutions. Now, all is not lost, of course. Uh, One of the most interesting things to me is that while trust in a lot of the big institutions has been waning, uh, trust in local government has maintained a pretty high level. In fact, most Americans, 67% of Americans, trust local government to handle local problems. Uh, It's when you get to that federal level, the further you get away from the people and the accountability factor, the lower the trust level. That makes sense. But we're also seeing great erosion uh, in some of the important institutions in our federal government. Of course, uh, Congress has been wildly unpopular for quite some time now. And the favorability, the positive view of those uh, in elected office uh, has gone down. In fact, only 6%. Uh, voters, according to an RMG poll done just earlier this year, only 6% have a highly favorable opinion of members of Congress. 6%. Uh, I think that is lower than cancer, pneumonia, and the COVID-19 virus. Uh, that is very low on the popularity scale. Uh, nobody has a favorable view. The more disturbing thing to me is we're starting to lose confidence in places where we used to have very high levels of trust, like the Supreme Court. As the Supreme Court continues to be weaponized and politicized, mostly because Congress continues to abdicate its authority to the executive branch, the executive branch is all too happy to take that power and use it and do things by rule from an agency or by executive order from the president, doesn't matter what party, and then somebody files a lawsuit. And then it works its way through the court and it ultimately ends up in the Supreme Court. So nobody should be surprised in any way, shape, or form that the appointment of people to the Supreme Court has become so weaponized and so politicized because everything's ending up in the courts because Congress continues to abdicate its authority and not do its job, and the executive branch continues to overreach and do more than is actually its job. And so then people file lawsuits, and they think the way you get things done is – not to take on Washington or not to embrace or engage with your representative, but to file a lawsuit. And all of that just undermines trust, and it leads us to the most dangerous space of all, and that is that we've not only lost trust in the institutions of government, we've lost trust in each other. That's the most worrisome thing to me. For years and years, decades, if you were asked the question, do you trust your neighbor? That was a 80% plus respondent every single time. Everybody trusted their neighbor. Everybody knew their neighbor. And now the number of people in America who trust their neighbor is in the low 20s. And for young people, it's in the teens. And so that's the real test for us. If we're going to build this thing back out, I guarantee you it's not going to happen with an executive order or an act of Congress. It's going to require an act of courage and an act of engagement from you and me with our neighbors, then our neighborhood, then our community, then our state. And that's how you build trust. Trust is done one relationship, not one transaction. One relationship at a time is how you build trust. And the fact that we continue to lose that is to me one of the most troubling parts of what's going on and not going on in our country. If we do not put trust first in this country, 
uh, we are not going to have a country that will actually last. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson, and we started the program today talking about trust. Trust in the institutions of government, which are very low. Trust. Trust in those that uh, occupy the seats inside those institutions is also incredibly low. And whether it's the Supreme Court, Congress, the executive branch, there's not a lot of trust. Uh, And often what happens with that lack of trust is we end up with a lot of fake fights and false choices when it comes to dealing with real serious issues. So as always, as we like to do on this program, we're going to get past the headlines and the talking points and have a different kind of conversation about a real important issue, Social Security. Uh, Everyone knows uh, that uh, funds are winding down, and you can talk about the demographic changes. You can talk about all of those things that are impacting that. Uh, But there's uh, a simple reality, and that is that if nothing changes, everything will change to those who need it the most. Uh, And there are ways and there are paths to do it differently if we're willing to engage in a different kind of conversations. Well, Andrew Biggs is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He studies Social Security reform, state and local government pensions, and public sector pay and benefits. And uh, Andrew, uh, welcome to the show. And it's great to have you on. And, and it's great to have someone looking at this in a way that we can we can deal with Social Security. Nobody wants to have the hard conversation or the real conversation. But when you actually engage in the real conversation, there are actually some pretty good paths forward. Well, thanks for having me today, Boyd. I'm really happy to be with you. And yeah, it's a lot of what it comes down to with with fixing Social Security is coming to a common set of facts. What I've discovered over essentially a career of working (laughs) on Social Security reform is a lot of the things that people think about Social Security aren't true. And if you give people a common set of facts about how the program works, then they'll compromise a bit more and come together a little bit more on, on solutions. And the easy solutions of, well, you know, some Congress stole the money or some freeloaders are taking it, that stuff's not true. But once we eliminate that stuff, then we can get back to the, to the tougher choices that we need to make. Yeah, and uh, I, I love your approach to all of this because you get to the facts, you get to the, the actual dollars and cents of it based on a set of principles. Uh, and so walk us through some of that just from a practical, tactical uh, someone who's looking to retire this year and the next little bit, what does that look like and what kind of changes do we actually need to be deploying? Well, Social Security benefits are safe for now. Um, the trust fund will run out sometime in the early 2030s. The CBO says 2033. Social Security says 2034. So it's, it's give or take there. When that happens, your benefits won't be cut to zero, but they would cut, be, be cut by around one quarter. Now, that will be a real problem for, for retirees, for the disabled, for survivors. You know, a lot of people really depend on this. At the same time, though, there are solutions that we can come to that I think can, can keep that safety net and improve the safety net from Social Security without having to have dramatic increases in taxes. I mean, to fix Social Security without reducing benefits that means essentially the, the largest tax increase in history. And it leaves no money to fix Medicare to do all the other things that we might want to do. So it's, I, I, th- I think there's some real opportunities when people start to understand 
how Social Security works, how much it's actually paying out to people, which is, in a lot of cases a lot more than you think. Yeah. And then when you do that, we can come to some agreements that I think are pretty reasonable. Yeah, and so let's walk through some of that. Take us through some of those numbers. I think it's important for people to kind of wrap their heads around this a little bit in terms of what do the dollars and cents really look like? Because as you said, once you know the reality, then you can have a different kind of conversation. Sure. I wrote a piece this week in National Review Online where I ran through some of the numbers of what people are getting from Social Security. And I, I spent a long time working at the Social Security Administration. I worked in the Bush White House on Social Security. So I know these numbers pretty pretty well. A lot of people think Social Security just pays you a poverty level of benefit. There's just a safety net. If you had two middle-income workers retiring this year at the full retirement age, they would receive over $59,000 in, in annual benefits. That's twice the poverty threshold before they touch even a penny of their own uh, savings. If you have two people who are what called maximum wage workers, who are making about $168,000 a year, they would retire on $96,000 in benefits. Now, in a sense, we could actually afford to pay those benefit levels. The problem is with Social Security, those benefit levels are projected to rise. The current law was just going to increase them. So by, by 2050, a middle-income couple will be looking at $76,000 in benefits. That's an inflation-adjusted dollars. It's just more than you need in order to have a decent safety net for people. And it's also much more than what Social Security programs in other countries pay. I mean, just as an example, in, in Canada, the maximum benefit that a couple can get is about $30,000 a year. Here, the maximum benefit is $96,000 a year. Now, Canadian seniors are not starving. They're doing just fine. If you reduce benefits gradually for high-income seniors, they'll save more over the course of their careers. Economics is very clear on that. So we're doing a lot of things we really don't need to be doing. We're paying a lot of money to people who don't need to be paying it to. And I'm not saying we you know, pull the rug out from people and make sudden cuts. People depend on this. They paid into it and they count on it. But for the long term, paying ever-increasing benefits to people who are literally the richest retirees in the history of the world, it's just not something we need to be doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love the fact that that just kind of takes everything – out of it in terms of the the left right and uh, man I remember it was just a year ago that you know the president uh, Biden was standing there in the well of the House of Representatives delivering the State of the Union and getting everybody to chant and cheer uh, about not touching Social Security uh, and uh, and and while that's a great populist moment for all <laughs> magical TV I guess uh, but it's also magic thinking in terms of what is actually going to come as you mentioned uh, by 2033 or 2034. Uh, those things are, are going to, to be cut uh, by default. Uh, and again, probably going to hurt the poor and the most vulnerable the most. And uh, we've we got to have that different conversation. So just, just in our, our last minute or so here, uh, give us the, how should, how should we be talking about this uh, as citizens and how should we be talking about it with our representatives? Well, the way I think about it is, you know, Social Security should provide a safety net against poverty and old age. Currently, it's actually not a particularly good one. We could make that better. But Social Security can protect the people who need it the most while still living within its means. And if we look at how other countries that are similar to us run their Social Security programs, Canada, United Kingdom, Australia, 
they don't do what we're doing. They focus their money on the people who need it the most. Mm. That reduces benefits for rich people. It also reduces taxes for rich people. Mm. If you're in the United States, the maximum tax you can pay on Social Security is three times higher than the maximum tax a high-income person would, would pay in Canada. So th- there's just no reason for a lot of what we do. We need to focus Social Security not on just continuing the current system without thinking about it, but say focus it on what we want it to accomplish, which is protecting low-income retirees, protecting the disabled, protecting survivors. Doing that is cheap. Paying $96,000 a year to high-income people, that's expensive. Yeah. We just need to focus on what we want the program to do. Yeah. Love that. This is exactly why we do this show. And Andrew, this is exactly why we have you on this show. Andrew Biggs is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, And this is the conversation you won't hear about Social Security just about anywhere else because it's too easy to make it a political wedge issue or weaponize it uh, for some kind of populist movement or class warfare, whatever you want to call it. Uh, But this is the crucial conversation. It's all about what do we want the desired result to be for this program Uh, And we can actually get it done and protect those who need it the most uh, and make it work for everybody and for the long haul. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for joining joining us today. Great insight. And uh, we look forward to having you back. Hey, thanks, bud. All right. That's Andrew Biggs, Senior Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh, That's important stuff. Again, you're not hearing that anywhere else when it comes to Social Security. Uh, You're going to hear left and right say, oh, you know, they don't care. They're just going to push grandma off the cliff uh, because that's nice political soundbite. It's a great bumper sticker for a political campaign. It's a great way to raise campaign cash and scare people uh, about one side of the aisle or the other. But the reality is, is if nothing changes for those who need Social Security the most, everything will change within 10 years. But we can do it. And there's no reason we need to be doing these high payouts to people who don't need it. So you could actually give them less, and then you could actually have them pay less in taxes as a result. It sounds like a win-win. It sounds like practical tactical to me. I think we ought to give it a try. I think that it will actually work. All right, we'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Last week, before Congress decided to recess for a couple of weeks, the Senate passed a bipartisan bill to fund more military aid to Ukraine and Israel, also funding for humanitarian efforts in Gaza and bolstering our military near Taiwan. And since its passing, uh, President Biden, along with Senate leadership from uh, both sides of the aisle, have put pressure on Speaker of the House Mike Johnson to take up the bill and have a vote. Uh, As of now, of course, the bill remains stalled. uh, And much of that coming as there are threats to Speaker Johnson holding on to the gavel, the speakership. Uh, Interesting, as this moves forward and as pressure continues to mount and calls for help from Ukraine and from European allies continues to mount, uh, there's an interesting space uh, and an interesting person who's maybe offering a lifeline to Speaker of the House Mike Johnson uh, to ensure that he would not only be able to bring the bill up, but also maintain his job as Speaker of the House. Michael Snell is a staff writer for The Hill covering the latest news coming out of Congress. And uh, Michael, great piece in The Hill today talking about a Democrat uh, trying to protect Speaker Johnson in exchange for a vote on Ukraine aid. Give us the backstory. 
Hey, yeah, thanks for having me. So the Democrat moderate that we're talking about here is Congressman uh, Josh Gottheimer. He's a Democrat from uh, New Jersey. And essentially what he has here is a proposal to change the rules, the House rules, for motion to vacate to increase the threshold needed to force a vote on ousting the Speaker, increasing that from one member, which it currently is, to essentially a sense of the conference or caucus who needs at least a majority support from the conference or caucus or backing from uh, leadership of the conference or caucus. Uh, so so Gottheimer is proposing that rules change, but if and only if, and this is the key part, if Johnson uh, agrees to hold a vote on the Senate foreign aid package, which passed last week with wide bipartisan support, 70 members voting in support there, or putting a foreign aid package that is similar to that Senate aid bill on the floor for a vote. Now, as you laid out in the introduction, foreign aid, particularly Ukraine aid, has been a really thorny issue for Speaker Johnson as a growing number of Republicans become opposed to additional aid for Kiev, uh, as we see some conservatives, specifically Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, warn Johnson that she will trigger a vote on ousting him if he puts Ukraine aid on the floor. So this is one escape hatch from Gottheimer, whether or not it's something Johnson would agree to, A, and B, whether or not it's something that could get enough support in the House to make that rules change. That remains to be seen. But look, it just shows the increased pressure uh, that lawmakers are feeling to pass this foreign aid. Yeah, and it's so fascinating. And just uh, for our listeners uh, who will recall the the drama and maybe the trauma of uh, what took place last year uh, in the House of Representatives as you have this ability under the current rules in the House, again, these are Republican rules that were established, that any single member uh, could file that petition to vacate the chair. In other words, call that vote on whether the Speaker should remain the Speaker. And, of course, that began the ouster of... Uh, uh, the former speaker, and uh, and then weeks of drama to actually get to Speaker Johnson. So that's an interesting thing in terms of this would, uh, I think if I'm right, Michael, I think you pointed this out in your piece, that this would actually take the rules back to the way they were uh, under former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Yeah, that's exactly right. So it used to be like this under the Pelosi era, and then if I remember from back in last January, conservatives were extremely adamant that if they were to give their support to Kevin McCarthy for speaker, he would have to bring the threshold down for motion to vacate to just one member. Now, uh, initially, it was half of the conference, then uh, McCarthy to give in to those pleas decreased it to just five members. That was still not enough to appease most of those conservatives. So he brought that threshold down to one, and that ultimately allowed him to clinch the gavel after 15 ballots in January. But it also led to his demise in October after Congressman Matt Gates used that single-member motion to vacate to trigger a vote on ousting uh, McCarthy. He was then joined by seven other Republicans and all Democrats in ousting the Speaker, leading to the first ever successful motion to vacate. And, of course, you mentioned that trauma, that three weeks of chaos in the House where there was no Speaker and Republicans struggled to coalesce around a new leader. Uh, So now Gottheimer is looking to, in in a sign of good faith, put this resolution, uh, propose this resolution to increase the threshold for a motion to vacate. But again, he's only going to do that if he gets a vote on this foreign aid package. And as laid out before, that's a really tricky question that's been facing Johnson all speakership. Yeah, no question about that. And as you look at, uh, at Gottheimer's resolution, clearly he's a he's a moderate Democrat. Does, does he have or do you sense that he has the backing of 
the majority of his own party there in the House. Obviously, it's a very narrowly divided House right now. How are the rest of the House Democrats responding to this proposal to say, hey, we'll we'll protect the speakership as long as we can get a vote uh, on this uh, this aid package? Yeah, that's the key question here. And we still don't have a sense of how others feel about this. There has not been much reporting on this resolution other from a few outlets, and there hasn't been much commentary about it from lawmakers. The expectation is that Democrats would follow the lead of Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, the Democratic leader, which has been the case for previous big decisions, which we saw on whether it be funding bills, whether it be that October motion to vacate against McCarthy. Jeffries has really made the decision here and has had the full support of his caucus So if this resolution were to come to the floor for a vote, the expectation is that uh, Jeffries would make a decision with his leadership team and that members of the caucus would then follow suit. Uh, Fascinating stuff. Uh, Intrigue, as always. Uh, Michael Snell is the uh, staff writer for The Hill, covering the latest news coming out of Congress. You can also see Michael on News Nation from time to time. We enjoy that commentary (laughs) as well. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Great perspective. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, again, that's Michael Schnell, a staff writer for The Hill, and uh, a really interesting piece. Uh, uh, imagine that, if you will, that you would have Democrats uh, protecting the Republican Speaker of the House from being ousted. Uh, that's a that's a think-again moment, I think, on a, uh, on a day like today, uh, but it could happen. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how this progresses. Again, this is coming from a moderate uh, Democrat. Will the rest of the Democrats be on board with that as a strategy? I think as the pressure continues to mount, especially following the death of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, uh, I think the the pressure for that aid to Ukraine in particular is going to continue to mount. Uh, And so what will happen there? Will Speaker Johnson uh, put the package that was passed by the Senate on the floor as is? Uh, Will Speaker Johnson try to break it apart and maybe put on just the Ukraine uh, aid package or just Israel or just the uh, that for Gaza uh, and have separate votes for each of those. That could be an interesting path to actually getting something done as well. So all of those are things that we're going to continue to watch and play. Of course, uh, it's not happening uh, in our nation's capital today uh, because they are on recess. Uh, they are not in town uh, since the Senate passed the bill. Uh, everybody has uh, vacated, not the chair, but vacated the building Uh, and gone back to their districts. And so uh, when they get back in session, uh, this is going to be a big front and center issue. And the question will be, what does Speaker Johnson do? We'll continue to track it and watch it. We'll step aside for a quick break. More Inside Sources coming up next. Stick around. Get deeper insights on the news from Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as always. I am Boyd Matheson, and one of the things that I love about this show is we get to bring on some of the greatest thinkers, the greatest writers, the greatest analysts uh, in the country to have crucial conversations about things that really matter. And most important, uh, we're never here to tell you what to think. We're here to present information so that you can think about what you think you know, and maybe even think again. And one of the areas, of course, that has been very divisive in the nation, I think far more for political reasons than actual reality, uh, is race politics. Uh, our next guest is one of those great thinkers, as we round out, out uh, our number one of the show, uh, has a new book out, The End of Race Politics, Arguments for a Colorblind American, America uh, by Coleman Hughes. And uh, Coleman, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. 
great analysis, great insight in all of this. And for our listeners, I want to just set some context as we let you unpack some of this for us. Uh, you were one of the few black students in the philosophy program at Columbia University years ago, and you had this curious question. We love being radically curious on this show. <clears throat> you wondered why your peers seemed more pessimistic about the state of American race relations than your own grandparents who actually lived through uh, segregation. Unpack that for us. Yeah, so as a student at Columbia, I would read the student newspaper every day, and I would see people routinely say things like they experience racism and white supremacy every single day on campus. And that was strange to me because as a black student on campus, I felt I was in clearly one of the most progressive and non-racist environments in the country, if not on planet Earth. So that that dissonance bothered me. Mm. And I became very curious why it was that students were so concerned about white supremacy in what was clearly one of the least racist places in the country. Yeah, and I think that's something that a lot of people have struggled with to say, well, wait a minute, I, it doesn't ring true, it doesn't resonate with me or my experience that, uh, that that's happening in my neighborhood or my area. And, and so as you dug into that, uh, walk us through that. What did you find? What did you discover? And how can we start to reframe this conversation? Well, what I discovered was that if you look at all the polling data, the majority of Americans, black, white, and Hispanic, all believed that race relations were good around 2013. And those numbers have been improving over the two decades prior to that. And something changed right around 2013 uh, that led to a precipitous nosedive in race relations, where by 2021, basically half of Americans thought we were in a good place, as would have said that in 2013. And what happened, initially, everyone got smartphones, so we were able to see out of context video clips of arrests gone wrong and all kinds of content without any context that led people to think that racism was on the rise. And that's what gave people the false impression that race relations were getting worse when, in fact, they had been getting better for decades. Mm. I think that's so fascinating. And it's one other area where this whole idea of instant certainty uh, began because you saw that clip or that out of context comment uh, that instant certainty uh, undermines trust. It's a great threat to trust. Uh, and it's also, uh, it undermines truth <laughs> and what what is actually going on and prevents us from having the real conversations. Uh, and, and Sorry, so I, you cut out there for a second. Oh, uh, I was just saying that uh, that this whole idea of the instant certainty, instant certainty is the enemy of truth and it undermines trust, especially trust in each other. Uh, and so talk to us in terms of this idea of a different kind of color blindness. It's, it's been another one of those things that's been weaponized, uh, going back to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and the content of your character. Uh, but now it seems like that's been distorted and actually has become more of a wedge than in a uniting force in the country. That's right. Uh, it, it used to be that, you know, almost everyone of goodwill aspired to a colorblind society. But in the past few decades, the idea of colorblindness has come under such attack from writers and intellectuals and tastemakers that uh, many people now believe colorblindness is the enemy. So the point of my book is to try to rescue and rehabilitate 
the kind of colorblindness that we should be striving towards. And by colorblindness, I don't mean we pretend to not notice race. I don't mean we pretend that race doesn't exist or, or anything like that. I mean, we all notice race. We, we're all capable of being racist. But colorblindness should mean I treat you you try without regard to my race, and we all try to raise our children to not matter. And and more controversially, we get race and racial discrimination of all kinds out of our public policy. So that's the point of my book. Yeah, and uh, you, you cut out just a, a little bit there, so I want I want to make sure we get this uh, for everyone to really understand uh, in terms of the the policy. So this is not a uh, Pollyanna approach. This is not a uh, everyone's the same. It, it, oneness is not sameness, and we value the differences and all of those things. Uh, but just walk us through in terms of how do we get that applied uh, all the way to the policy level, as, as you were describing, uh, so that we can actually have the the better conversation. That's right. Uh, I think, you know, uh, colorblindness means that we should try to get race out of our public policy. Wherever we want policies to take care of and help disadvantaged people, we should do that on the basis of class and socioeconomics, not on the basis of race. Mm, uh, that's great. Uh, and I think that's a, an important part of that. As, uh, as you have people walk away from the book, uh, give us one thing today that we ought to be thinking differently or talking differently about uh, when it comes to race in America. Sorry, I didn't catch that end. Uh, what's the one thing that we should be thinking differently about or talking differently about when it comes to race in America? Yes. The thing, I, I don't see color, which is a very confusing statement because obviously everyone does see color. I try to I treat people without regard to their race. And that's really what we should trying to do. That's how we should be raising our children to think about race. And I think that, that that phrase should be on people's lips when they try to convey what, what they believe and how they uh, um, strive to treat people. Uh, great stuff. Uh, Coleman Hughes is a writer, podcaster, opinion columnist, uh, specializes in issues related to race, public policy, and applied ethics. Uh, you can find uh, Coleman's writing. It's been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, National Review, and a host of others. He's appeared in Forbes 30 Under 30 list. Uh, and his new book, uh, you should check this out. I think it's a, a read that is important to the right kind of conversation in the country, The End of Race Politics. Arguments for a Colorblind America. Uh, Coleman, thanks so much for joining us today. Fantastic perspective. We look forward to having you back to continue the conversation uh, to see if we can't make a difference on this front. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Uh, again, that's uh, Coleman Hughes joining us, and uh, he's got some great stuff out there. I This is one of those where uh, I heard him uh, on one of the cable news networks uh, making a very articulate, very powerful not argument, but comment uh, in terms of where we are and where we need to go. And sadly, when it comes to our conversations around race in the country, we have allowed them to become so politicized and so weaponized uh, that we can't really have the right kind of conversation. Uh, And so this whole idea of ending race politics, I think we all ought to cheer and get on board for. Uh, But I just it was so fascinating to me. Uh, Again, uh, Coleman was a black student in philosophy on the campus of Columbia University. 
And there he is reading in the student newspaper, hearing from his peers in class uh, just how racist everything was on campus. He said he felt like he was on the least racist, most progressive space on the planet. And so why was it that everyone else was thinking that race relationships were getting worse when the data suggested they were actually getting better? And a lot of that comes down to our politics who that always benefit off of division. Uh, and that's up to all of us. And as Coleman said, oneness is not sameness. We value the differences. We see those differences, but we base how we interact with each other on the content of the character. All right, that wraps up hour number one of Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. We'll step aside for some top of the hour news, but don't go anywhere. We got a big hour number two coming up next. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's Voice of Reason. Boyd Matheson. On Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources. On KSL News Radio. Well, as we continue to move through 2024, we get closer to an important milestone in our nation's history, and that will be in 2026, when America will actually celebrate the 250th anniversary as a country. It's also been nearly 250 years since our founders declared their independence from Great Britain, fought a war to secure that independence. And so we want to look at what are the preparations underway, what's happening there, what's worth celebrating from our past, from our present And what are we looking forward to for the future? Let's begin. Think you know the news of the day? Think again with Boyd Matheson on KSL News Radio. We have lots of historic milestones coming up here for this country. And in a time when there's so much negativity, there's so much chatter and clamor and division when it comes to the political side of things, that we need to get back to the principles, uh, to the documents, to the things that set the foundation in order and should give us all hope and confidence that the best is yet to come. Uh, Someone who deals with this every day, uh, Dr. David Bob, President and CEO of the Bill of Rights Institute, joins us on the line. And Dr. Bob, welcome back to the show. Great to be with you, Boyd. Uh, So give us some sense in terms of uh, some of the preparations uh, that are underway as we look at some of these big milestones coming up in our nation's history. Well, there's a flurry of activity. One of the uh, main organizations that's been tasked with uh, spending U.S. taxpayer dollars is called America 250. They have set up an ambitious plan uh, with lots of different aspects to uh, to, to their overall um, kind of project related to A250, as it's called uh, in short. The official term, by the way, is semi-quincentennial, so you can understand why A250 is the go-to. <laughs> I, th- I think we'll go oh, with that well. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so this organization is called America 250, and there's some really fine people associated with it. But I noticed recently in visiting their website and in talking with the, their leadership and, and all that they are using a, a, a verb, commemorate. Mm. And they note that it's a time that we should um, pause and reflect on our nation's past. Now, when I think of those words, pausing, reflecting, commemorating, I almost wonder, like, are they saying, hey, it's been a pretty good run? You know, we've had 250 years. I I look at this point as an opportunity for America to celebrate, to celebrate the things 
that, that, that give us confidence about the future. And even as we think about our past, we're looking to this question. On July 4th, 2026, do we feel confident that we have another 250 years as a country? It's going to take going back to first principles to ensure that we do. Yeah, I love that whole concept of those first principles, and uh, and I think it's uh, I, I'm even going to double down on that uh, with you, Doctor Bob, and that is that we we need to celebrate, and then we need to emulate uh, those mm. first principles uh, and those first Americans who were willing to stand up for those principles uh, in ways that I think have become a little lax uh, and a little confusing for a lot of us here in uh, 2024. I think you're right. Emulate is a good word. You know, we have found in a lot of our textbooks an kind of um, almost embarrassment about the early days. And I think we can see it in a person like Howard Zinn, uh, who has had a best-selling textbook even after his death that says of the founding that it was mainly guns and greed. Mm. Now, not all of our textbooks are Howard Zinn, but many of them are Howard Zinn light. And they say, rather than emulate, you ought to ignore or you ought to uh, even castigate, yeah. you know, and that criticism saying that the founding was was just warts um, misses the mark by a lot, because I think what we can celebrate and what we can emulate is that there were individuals, men and women who went out on a limb mm-hmm. and said, we're going to start something. We're going to put it put its foundation in a place that never before had been the foundation of a regime equality and liberty for all and we're going to set that up as a standard that judges us are we living up to that standard think of that that takes a lot of courage right to be able to say we are going to put these principles in first place and really set them high that for all of our history, we will be judged by how well we put those principles into practice. Yeah, I think that's so vital. And I think you hit on something that's so important in this conversation. And to me, this is the think again. Uh, This is not about uh, denying things that were bad or wrong or times in our nation's history when we haven't lived up to the principles we profess to believe. Uh, I always say you have to be careful traveling back in history. It's like going to a foreign country. Uh, They do Mm. things different there. Uh, and it's easy to to just poke. And, and while we can have a warts and all history, uh, it's surely not a warts only uh, history that we need to get to. Uh, and I, I think there was a, a really interesting uh, comment uh, recently that I read. It says opposition is uncomplicated. Deconstruction is undemanding. Uh, and we see that a lot. Uh, even uh, very simple-minded people can wax pretty eloquent in scoffing uh, at founders or founding people uh, as opposed to, hey, look at, look at where we are and look at what can possibly come next. And, and so walk us through. You, you do this every day at the Bill of Rights Institute and, and help students and teachers uh, and, and parents and people across the country have the right kind of conversation about both our history and, importantly, those principles that made it have preserved it and will enable it to actually move forward? Well, I think you start with the basics and the fact that we have a birthday. Not many nations do, you know, especially not many colonial nations do. We're throwing off a power, saying the Declaration of Independence, that this prince has become a tyrant. And in the Declaration of Independence, we state 
we stated very clearly as a country the ideals by which we wanted to live. The Constitution sought to fulfill that North Star, to be a means to fulfillment of that. Has it been perfect? No. You have to teach the whole of American history. It is a crooked line towards justice, towards liberty and justice for all. But the fact that we built into our very system a sense that we are aspiring toward a more perfect union gave people from the jump those who were already enjoying those rights and freedoms and those who were deprived of them a common place. We had affirmed the common uh, right of all human beings to freedom and equality. That's a remarkable thing. No other regime in the history of the world had done that. And by doing that, we gave those who were fighting for, say, the voting rights for women, for abolition of slavery, for the achievement of civil rights. Think of those great freedom fighters who pointed back to that thing done on July 4th, 1776. They're all pointing back to those principles and saying that's what we're trying to achieve, yeah. and that's worthy of emulation. Yeah, that's right, and I think that is the the essence of it all is that we're aspiring towards a more perfect union. We're not perfect. We're not declaring victory because it's an ongoing effort that we all need to engage in, but we only engage in that uh, not by just poking at the past or poking at our our flaws, however they might be. But it's in coming together to figure out how do we move forward towards that more perfect union. Dr. David Bob is the president and CEO of the Bill of Rights Institute, one of our favorite guests on the show. Uh, Dr. Bob, thanks so much for joining us today. We'll have you back soon as we continue to celebrate and emulate those first freedoms. Thanks for joining us today. Always great to talk, Boyd. Thank you. We'll be right back. Think again on Inside Sources with Boyd Matheson. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today. As always, I am Boyd Matheson. And, you know, for many people, healthcare, the healthcare field uh, is just one of those things that you just have to sigh and ug, and it's always just this very hard thing. And so we're always looking for what's the better solution? What's a different way? Uh, we love to be radically curious on this program. So we're always looking at what's a different way to make sure healthcare works for people? What's a way to make it accessible, affordable, all of those kinds of things. Uh, and one group that has been enhancing the best care possible for those in need is the, that's really the mission of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. It is a fascinating concept. It's been having great success around the country. Uh, and as is usually the case, when you start having success, government immediately wants to regulate or control it or to change it to fit their little system, uh, which always seems to benefit the system rather than the people. Uh, really pleased to have joining us in studio today, Katie Talento is the executive director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. She's an epidemiologist, veteran healthcare policy advisor, healthcare consultant. And Katie, welcome to the state of Utah and welcome to Inside, uh, Inside the Show. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to be here. Awesome. So for our listeners, give us a little bit of the backstory in terms of where did this uh, 
healthcare sharing ministries really come about? Yeah, so it evolved out of small Mennonite and Anabaptist communities and started to grow around in the in the 80s and 90s. And then, um, so there were several hundred thousand Americans nationwide at that time. But then the ACA exempted members of healthcare sharing mm-hmm. ministries from the ACA's burdensome individual tax mandate. And, you know, that makes us all have to buy insurance. And so that was a really important um, off-ramp for people who had conscientious uh, conscientious objections to things that insurance requires, like subsidizes abortions or other things. Um, And it also helped when the ACA started driving up insurance premiums, people were priced out of health insurance. And so this is a non-insurance model that people of similar religious beliefs come together and they share in each other's expenses and they bear one another's burdens, like in the book of Acts in the Bible. Yeah, it's such a fascinating concept, and we love to see when these things play out. So walk us through. You mentioned it's not insurance, so it's a different animal than having your insurance card and showing up and paying a, a copay or whatever. So describe how it actually works in practicality. Yeah, sure. So you go to a doctor or a hospital, and you say, hi, I'm an uninsured cash pay patient. What is your discounted cash price? Mm. And they'll give it to you, and then you get your care, and you get a bill, and you upload that bill to the ministry's portal. The ministry then makes sure that everything there is eligible for sharing. It's not an abortion or whatever. And then it assigns other ministry members to share in your bill. So if your bill is $10,000, it might assign, you know, 20, 30 people to help share that bill. Um, And you'll get either checks from them or PayPal transfers, or the ministry will collect those and send them to you or the hospital. Yeah, such a fascinating way to to get at uh, a problem. And again, so many people have been priced out. Uh, Things that happen under the Affordable Care Act uh, clearly have impacted so many, especially small business owners, uh, independent uh, workers that way uh, have really been hit. And so you've started to have success. Give us a sense of scale in terms of how many are participating across the country. And then we'll get into how government is now eking in on that and how it's actually a first freedom. It's a freedom of religion issue as well. That's exactly right. So there are more than 1.3 million Americans that are members of healthcare sharing now. And, um, you know, in Utah, it's about 10,000 people here are participating in these ministries. So it's not nothing, but it's also not so large. It's some big threat to the insurance market. You know, it's some huge competitor. It's not. We're we're just little Christians over here. The government doesn't need to take any notice of us. <laughs> uh, and so, of course, government has taken notice of you. Uh, and in a lot of states across the country, uh, uh, the regulators uh, have things to regulate. And so now they're coming after regulating you more as if you were an insurance company as opposed to the kind of organization that you are. Well, they're trying to. But actually, what's been really encouraging is that more than 30 states have now adopted statutes that explicitly exempt healthcare sharing ministries from the state insurance code. Mm. And that's really important because we're already regulated under the attorney general. And here in Utah, under the Department of Commerce, you know, we're like any charity. We're yeah. not allowed to lie, cheat, steal. All that's illegal already. And, you know, any attorney general can enforce those laws. We don't need to also be under the insurance bureaucracy in any state. And so those state statutes are really important. And most states in the union have already recognized that. Mm. Utah has not. It's an outlier. And it's strange, given the Religious Liberty Foundation of this state, we were really surprised to see an insurance commissioner and insurance legislators, in other words, legislators on the committees that oversee Mm. insurance in the state legislature, pushing 
bills that would put us directly and squarely under the insurance commission bureaucracy. It's very strange. We're hoping that we can fix this bill. Yeah. And so as you as you look at that, obviously, if you had to function under the rules of uh, of the insurance auspices, uh, that creates a whole different set of that's like it's just a different animal. It, it would make you what you are not. Uh, it would make you an insurance company. Uh, and so I think that that's a very interesting thing. And, and describe for us uh, things that uh, would be required of you uh, under that auspices if you're under that uh, insurance agency, so to speak. Yeah. So under the statute that is being, con- or the, the legislation that's being considered right now, um, it's already passed the Utah Senate, by the way. It was jammed through very quickly. Um, so it's now being considered in the House of Representatives, and it would require a set of financial data collection and reporting scheme um, that that would be right to the commissioner. And if, ins- um, if healthcare sharing ministries don't comply according to the commissioner's dictates, then we could be accused of being unlicensed insurance and sent a cease and desist um, order, and we'd have to shut down in Utah. So those 10,000 Utahns, could, their solution could be in jeopardy. So that's a really big problem, obviously. We think this bill could be easily fixed mm. to comport with the laws that are very similar to the other states. Um, and so I don't think it's a big deal to fix this. And uh, we know that there's going to be an amendment offered in committee tomorrow. We're very hopeful that uh, representatives will support that amendment mm. and fix this rather than having to kill it. That's not what we want. Yeah, and I think it's so fascinating to to look at that as a as a nonprofit as a ministry uh, that you would be required to share all of your data and finances and all of that. We we surely wouldn't ask that of a church organization or a nonprofit or uh, another ministry uh, of any other name or size. Uh, and so I think that's a, an interesting thing to again. There's kind of a think again moment. Why is that happening? Uh, and so as you look at the amendment that's coming, uh, what is it that we should be thinking about uh, and the impact in terms of where this bill goes from here? So I think the important thing to remember is that the courts, the federal courts have already spoken very clearly mm. that, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the state's interest is here in sort of generalized consumer protection, which is, I think, what they're trying to accomplish, um, although I don't think the bill would achieve that. But, you know, that's not enough to start looking under the hood of religious organizations and churches, which is what this would this would require. And courts have struck down laws in other states where that has been attempted. So I think people need to just remember the Constitution, like your yeah. previous guest was talking about. <laughs> Radical Let's remember stuff. That the First Amendment actually prohibits excessive entanglement by yeah. the government with uh, religious organizations. And that's for a very good reason, as people in Utah know better than anyone. Yeah, no question about it. Katie Talento is executive director of the Alliance of Healthcare Sharing Ministries. I think this is a crucial conversation uh, because this is an important service. It's an important alternative in terms of healthcare. Uh, and again, some 10,000 Utahns are relying on this. Uh, and again, we shouldn't treat everything the same way, treat, creating a, or treating a ministry as if it were an insurance company. Uh, that doesn't add up in my book, nor does requiring a ministry or a church to report uh, things to the insurance agency bureau uh, make a whole lot of sense either. This is when you can weigh in, of course, obviously with your representatives uh, will be in committee and uh, possible amendments coming as well. Yes, and indeed, people can go to savechristianhealthcare.org, savechristianhealthcare.org, and they can click on the Utah button and see all the information about how they can take action today. Oh, fantastic. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Great perspective, great insight. This is one of those things I know you didn't wake up thinking about today, uh, but this is important, and not just for this particular uh, kind of approach to, to getting health care and helping people 
bear those costs. Uh, there's a lot of things under it. This is one of those that has a lot of those unintended consequences in the way things are being jammed through that impact not only healthcare but also religious organizations. It's one we ought to think again about. Uh, so make sure you think about it and weigh in on it as well. We'll be right back. Inside Sources. Inside Sources. America's voice of reason. Boyd Matheson on Utah's home for elevated conversation. Inside Sources on KSL News Radio. Well, within the Biden administration's save plan, it's been making a lot of headlines since President Biden introduced it last year with the promise to make an honest dent in student loan debt. Again, there's been various versions of how he was going to do that. Several struck down by the Supreme Court. Then they found out a way to do it by rule through some of the agency. Uh, nearly $138 billion has been doled out in the name of loan forgiveness. And tomorrow... Uh, He's going to take a page out of the uh, demigod in uh, Moana from Disney, uh, and he's going to send out emails uh, saying, you're welcome. And we're going to talk about that as a strategy, what that actually means in all of this. Michael Stratford, of course, uh, is from Politico, education reporter. And uh, Michael has a great piece on this today. And Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, so let's dig into this. Uh, let, let's start just with the, the bill itself, the process, and uh, what has actually gone through, how many people have been impacted, uh, how has the president gone about this particular version of providing some relief on the student loan front? Yeah, that's right. There are a lot of moving pieces here. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with what the president announced uh, more than a year ago, nearly two years ago now. The big $400 billion effort uh, that would have applied to 90% of student loan borrowers to lop up, you know, chop off $10,000 or $20,000 from their debt. Supreme Court said absolutely not to that. The conservatives in the Supreme Court uh, struck it down. And since then, the administration has been working on various uh, programs and individual actions to deliver the relief that they've promised to borrowers. So what the administration did today was announce a first bucket of loan forgiveness for borrowers who are enrolled in their new loan repayment program. It's a variation, a more generous variation of what the federal government has offered for a long time, which are income-driven repayment programs. Mm. Um, But under the Biden plan, uh, borrowers have an easier path to getting their loans forgiven uh, sooner, and they also face lower monthly payments than they did before. Okay. And, and so uh, talk to us in terms of uh, how many uh, specific students is this impacting um, and uh, and what is kind of the, the step process in terms of what they've done now? And is this something that they're going to continue to do and roll out over the course of the year? They're absolutely going to continue doing it. The president just finished speaking, uh, announcing this plan in Los Angeles a few minutes ago. Uh, and he said he's committed to continuing to announce buckets of student loan relief. Um, and as uh, you mentioned, he's going to be sending emails uh, to make sure people know who to, who to thank for that. Um, but what the administration, the number of people affected in today's action is about 153,000 borrowers. Um, and now that's just a fraction of the like 45 million Americans across the country who have student loan debt. But that number is going to keep going up through these sort of monthly or by every other month announcements by the administration of borrowers as they qualify for relief. Um, And then sort of on a separate track, 
the administration is looking at ways to come up with what is effectively a replacement program uh, that will cover vast numbers of people uh, to take the place of the program that the Supreme Court struck down last summer. Uh, so fascinating. So let's get to the communication strategy and the the politics of it all. You mentioned that he's uh, sending out uh, your welcome uh, emails. Uh, any sense of what's going to be in those? Will there be uh, the Rock Johnson singing uh, the Your Welcome song, or uh, how are they going about this? Well, we do have a copy of the email. The way the way has provided that. <laughs> no to singing. Us. So it's, it's not a it's not a secret. Uh, there's no no singing. Uh, it's a start. It's a seal of the of the president. It says a message from President Biden. The first word is congratulations. Uh, and I'm paraphrasing now, but it's effectively thanks to the policies of my administration, uh, you now have student debt relief, and it's signed uh, by the president at the end of the email. All right. Uh, and so uh, kind of walk us through that next phase in terms of the buckets. Um, uh, you, you talked about uh, the context of uh, the 7.3 million who are currently enrolled in the SAVE plan. I'm assuming all of them. So it's about 153,000 you mentioned uh, that are in this first bucket. Um, how does that look to progress forward? And then you mentioned there's a much larger number uh, that own some sort of student debt. Uh, any kind of sense in terms of how they're going to go about to whacking at some of those? Yeah, so those 7.5 million people who are already in the SAVE plan are benefiting from lower monthly payments. And as they hit their uh, milestones, having made payments for a certain amount of time, as few as, as 12 years, up to 25 years, depending on the type of loan they have and how much they took out and whether they went to graduate school or just went to undergrad, uh, that relief will continue as those borrowers become eligible. Separate from that, the administration, we don't know the number of people who, who will be affected, but they are creating broad categories of borrowers who will be eligible for their forthcoming program that we should see at some point later this year. And that includes borrowers whose debt balances have ballooned from their, their original amount because of interest, uh, borrowers who went to what the education department deems low quality uh, college programs. And more, most interestingly, the administration last week, said, last week said they're building a category for hardship. Uh, and they have dozens of factors uh, that, they, that they say will indicate whether a borrower is likely to be unable to pay on their debt based on income, based on the balance, um, and that they'll provide some relief to those borrowers as well. But we just sort of know the broad contours of those plans, not the number of people who will be affected. Yeah. Uh, and then just in, in your reporting, you, you did such a great job of laying out all the different numbers and the different buckets and those who could be eligible or would be eligible. Uh, what's, what is the pushback? Is there any pushback at all? Uh, again, election year, it's always hard to push back on uh, getting dollars to, to people. Uh, anything in terms of how this is impacting uh, everything from national debt to deficit spending to cost of education in general? Uh, any sense in terms of where that discussion might be going in this process? Yeah, well, uh, Republicans have made no secret that they are opposed uh, uh, in of opposed to uh, the various student debt relief policies that the administration has been pursuing, both that big plan uh, that was struck down by the Supreme Court and these subsequent actions to to sort of find ways around that, that ruling. Republicans have voted uh, in Congress 
to block the plan. Uh, those efforts uh, either haven't made them, it through the Democratic-controlled Senate or in other cases were vetoed by the, by the president. Um, but they argue that these are unfair uh, policies that um, affect or basically subsidizing people who don't need the subsidy or um, who, uh, you know, uh, chose to attend college and take on this, took on this debt willingly. Um, and they argue and, and point out that these programs are expensive to to federal taxpayers. It costs the government hundreds of billions of dollars to uh, to forgive this debt. Yeah. Uh, great perspective. Great insight on all of this. Michael Stratford, of course, education reporter for Politico. Check out his piece at Politico.com uh, today. Great stuff. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Thanks. All right. Again, that's Michael Stratford, education reporter for Politico. Uh, and so interesting. Uh, again, obviously, in election year, the, the cynical component can be, well, that seems to be a, a good thing for a lot of those younger voters who may be on those kind of plans or in need of that kind of debt relief. Uh, also interesting uh, that the uh, the White House uh, has felt like they need to get the you're welcome email out there uh, to those folks. Uh, we always like to say if you have to declare it, you're not it. Uh, but it's an interesting thing. And it's one of those things that many on the Democratic side have said, look, Mr. President, you got to take credit uh, when you get some of these things through that benefit some of these American voters. And clearly the White House is taking notice of that. Uh, and they're saying you're welcome. So if you got a little uh, student loan forgiveness in your future, you probably get an email from the president under the seal of the president of the United States that says just that. You're welcome. We'll be right back. Hear elevated conversation on crucial issues. Boyd Matheson on Inside Sources. Welcome back to Inside Sources here on KSL News Radio. It's great to be with you today, as it always is. I am Boyd Matheson. As we round out the program today, uh, I keep coming back. We, we just keep hearing the language over and over, you know, that this election year is the battle for the heart and soul of the nation. Uh, and so I keep coming back to conversations I've had over the past year or so uh, about the soul of the nation, uh, what it really is, what it really means, and what our responsibility is. And one of the things that's really interesting to me uh, that I have tracked over the years is that the one thing you can't do when it comes to the soul of the nation is you can't outsource it. <laughs> it has to be a we the people issue. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, I spent years doing international business consulting. And I came to recognize as a consultant that superior systems were good. In fact, they were crucial in many instances, but they're not enough to sustain an organization. Uh, I saw so many companies that literally spent millions and millions of dollars on outsourced operational consultants and systems experts, only to find in the end that they didn't have the right culture. They didn't have the right substance or strategy to actually have things be sustainable. And so this hyper-focus on outsourcing was creating a lot of motion, a lot of activity in these organizations, temporarily kind of being a cover or a shield about the lack of forward movement on the mission or the vision of the organization. A lot of times there were a lot of deep holes in those companies uh, that a really good system just sort of covered up for the short term. And I'm convinced more than ever that what is true for the heart of an organization is also true for the soul of society. Outsourcing is not the answer. 
A friend of the show and uh, the late Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregation of the Commonwealth in the United Kingdom, uh, said on this very program that when morality is outsourced to either the market or the state, society has no substance, only systems. And systems are not enough. Think about that. When morality is outsourced to either the market or the state, society has no substance, only systems, and systems are simply not enough. And I think society has a pretty long laundry list of subcontracting units out there with all kinds of activities, uh, all kinds of moral, ethical, and virtuous behaviors uh, that are really vital that we have to get to. Congress is outsourcing lawmaking to the executive branch. Communities have been outsourcing caring for the poor and the needing to government agencies. Parents are outsourcing teaching morals and values to the schools. Individuals are outsourcing critical thinking to self-made social media bubbles. And many are outsourcing their own happiness to all kinds of external expectations and experts. Uh, you got all kinds of things like conflict resolution is being outsourced to the courts. Honesty is being outsourced to fact-checkers. Truth is being outsourced to ideological opinion, and trust has been outsourced outsourced for so long, I think it's getting really hard to determine where it's actually gone. So here's the think again. I think the systems of freedom are crucial. They're vital for us to safeguard. But America's constitutional republic has not been sustained solely on the basis of the system outlined in the Constitution. It's important. It has its place. Uh, I really believe that America is not a systematic achievement. Though the framing, the buttress work in the Constitution is vital. But it's not a systematic achievement. It is a moral achievement. Uh, Going back to Rabbi Sachs, he said a free society is indeed a moral achievement, and it is made by us and our habits of thought, speech, and deed. Morality cannot be outsourced because it depends on each of us. Without self-restraint, without the capacity to defer the gratification of instinct, without the habits of heart and deed that we call virtues, we'll eventually lose our freedom. Now, a moral and virtuous society, as the founders believed, was necessary to sustain liberty and is dependent on we the people committing to actually be the people who safeguard the soul of society. How? Through our daily actions. So when I spoke with Rabbi Sachs about kind of the downward spiral of societal trends, moral culture, Rabbi Sachs concluded Where there's no shared morality, there is no society. Instead, and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar today, there are subgroups, and hence identity politics. In the absence of shared ideals, many conclude that the best way of campaigning is to damage your opponent by all kinds of attacks. The result of all of that, of course, is division and cynicism, and right where we began the show today, a breakdown of trust. The world gets divided into the people like us and the people not like us. And what is lost is the notion of the common good. That undermines trust. 
That undermines neighborhoods and congregations, charities, even entire societies. So subcontracting the soul of the nation just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We can spend mounds of money on government-driven or market-managed solutions for morality in America, and it's not going to work in the end. I thought it was interesting, back in 1983, then-President Ronald Reagan said, the struggle now going on in the world will never be decided by bombs or rockets, by armies or military might. The real crisis we face today is a spiritual one at its root. It's a test of moral will and faith. So Reagan's call to the nation was pretty simple. We the people have to be the people. We have to be the ones to safeguard, to cherish, to foster the soul of the nation now and for generations to come. And especially as we look forward to 2026 and the 250th anniversary of so many things in this nation, that we have to get back to those very principles. We can't outsource it any longer. I think John Adams understood this probably better than anyone, that the soul of the nation has to be nourished at home, in community. In fact, Adams believed that the radical changes in the principles, opinions, and sentiments and the affections of the people was the real American Revolution. The radical change that formed the soul of our society here in America began very quietly as a cottage industry in homes, around hearths all across the colonies. And so we can look at all of the challenges and all the difficulties that we face in the country, but we can't outsource it to Congress. We can't outsource it to the Supreme Court. We can't outsource it to the executive branch. We have to bring it in-house. It is a cottage industry, and it begins with each of us and all of us making sure we're doing our part to strengthen the soul of society. All right, that wraps it up for us here on Inside Sources today on KSL News Radio. I am Boyd Matheson. Thanks for joining us. And as always, as you go out into the world today, make sure you see something that inspires, say something that uplifts, and do something that makes a difference. KSL FM Midvale. KSL Salt Lake City. From the KSL Common Spirit Health Studios. This is KSL News Radio. Utah's news, traffic, and weather station.